0: No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible.
1: Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Shap. Over the next hour, the story of a high school football team that embodies resiliency.
2: They thought you were down. They thought you were weak. They thought you couldn't fight back. You know what I got to say to that? Hell no!
1: Plus, author George Howe Colt discusses one of the most culturally significant college football games in American history.
3: Most of the students at Harvard and Yale in those days, as soon as they graduated from college, they were going to be facing the draft. And football provided them a diversion, an outlet. Oh, let's go to the Yale Bowl. Let's go to Harvard Stadium and forget about the war.
1: This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp.
4: Welcome to another dish of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be talking about one of the great rivalries in the annals of the game of football, Harvard-Yale. But right now, we're going to talk about another team that plays in New England, a team that has had some remarkable success, you might say, over the course of the last couple of decades. The New England Patriots, who are playing the Philadelphia Eagles this weekend. The Patriots are 8-1, and, and it is a pleasure to be joined by Patriots reporter from the Boston Globe, Jim McBride. Jim, thank you for being with us.
5: Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
4: Going into this rematch of a recent Super Bowl, which the Eagles somehow won, how would you describe where the Patriots are?
5: You know, I think the Patriots are, are anxious to get back to work after, uh, you know, after losing their, their last game to the uh, to the Ravens on Sunday night football uh, and then going into their bye week. So uh, it's not often that they, they have to have a, a bad taste linger in their mouth this long. But, uh, you know, we talked to the players on Monday when they came back from their four days off and they're all anxious to get to get back on the field and, and correct what they, you know, what they believe went wrong Um not only against the Ravens but uh, the week before against Cleveland even though they won they you know they were kind of exposed uh in the run game and the run defense and they they're anxious to kind of shore those uh those problems up.
4: We're speaking with Jim McBride of the Boston Globe about the New England Patriots who uh, share one of the best records in the NFL. They are 8 and 1 of course, they are the defending Super Bowl champions and it, you know we're we're at a place now that's unprecedented in the history of professional football, where there's one team in the league that we just assume will win it every year. And and even though statistically that is not what has happened over the course of the last 19 seasons, they've won six out of the 19 since Tom Brady or 18 since Tom Brady became the starter, replacing Drew Bledsoe in the 2001 season. We live in this world in which uh, it's, it's, it's the Patriots against the field essentially. Do you look at it that way, as someone who's around them all the time, that it's more likely they'll end up winning the Super Bowl than not?
5: Yeah, it sure feels that way. Since since we, I've been covering the team, and you know, certainly since Bill took over the program, um, you know, like I think everyone took that first win over the Rams uh, as as kind of a you know maybe a, a flukish type thing. But it, it was clear uh, not long after, you know, they, they missed the playoffs the next year. But then after that, they've just been on an incredible run. You know, uh, not only have they won six Super Bowl titles, but they've been to nine. Uh, so I think that, you know, when we, when we hit training camp in July, most of the beat reporters and, and most of the fans think, hey, this season's not ending until the second week of February. And it certainly has been bared out.
4: The only two common denominators, right, uh, in terms of, of the team for the whole time uh, are Belichick and Brady. And what Belichick does can be copied, and other coaches have left uh, the organization, gone other places, and have tried but failed to duplicate what he has done. Brady can't be duplicated. He's he's unique. When you look at it from that perspective, why hasn't anybody been able to even approach the model that was created by Bill Belichick in the early 2000s in New England? Is it all about Brady?
5: Well, no, and I think another important aspect of that is the, is the continuity and ownership. Um, you know, having uh, Bob Kraft here for this length of time, and he's been so, uh, you know, kind of hands-off when it comes to the football operation as far as letting Bill build his program and, you know, make the decisions uh, when it comes to the football team. He's never, you know, while well, he's omnipresent as far as on the sidelines after, before games and, 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 the, and the, you know, the, he's often showed during games, he's pretty hands-off when it comes to the day-to-day de- decisions of that team and, and the moves that Bill makes. And I think that being able to have that freedom uh, has really helped Bill, you know, not have to double-check maybe everything. And I think that, you know, sticking with Bill, um, you know, has proven to be s- such a great model uh, for, the, for the rest of the, you know, the league to kind of follow by because, you know, he's, he often talks about player, uh, coaches that that lose their job one, two, three seasons in. And, it uh, took him probably, even though they had won a Super Bowl, it probably took him five to six years to establish his program in New England and, and get it to where he, he likes it and where he only really has to make minor uh, tinkers here and there and changes. So I, I think that, that continuity and ownership um, has really helped uh, both Bill and Tom because they never really have to look over their shoulder uh, to think that the franchise might not be stable. It's, they know they know who's at the top. They know they're going to be given the freedom to, to make You know decisions on their own, and and I think that uh, that's tremendously um, freeing for them.
4: We're speaking with Jim McBride, who covers the Patriots for the Boston Globe and has done so for a long time. Bill Belichick's in his late sixties now. How much longer can he do this?
5: You know, it's funny he 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 spoke recently about that because he he had he had said earlier on in his career that he couldn't see himself coaching into his seventies, but now that he's sixty seven he feels differently because he didn't know what 70 was going to feel like. And now that he's getting close to that age, he still feels good. And, you know, I haven't seen um, his passion, you know, die down at all. Uh, it's it's sort of like Tom. You know, you, you don't see a great drop-off in his play and you don't see any drop-off in, in Bill's passion. He still loves being out there for OTAs, for rookie minicamp. He loves the draft process. He, he loves evaluating players. He loves being out at practice. Uh, I'm not going to say he loves meeting with us on a on – a, you know, a daily basis during the season. But all those other aspects of football, he just loves. And and I, I don't see him, you know, giving it up anytime soon, unless he's really doing a great uh, acting job.
4: What is it really like dealing with Tom Brady?
5: You know, we, we get Tom uh, twice a week, basically. Uh, we get him on Fridays of game week, and um, we get him after the games. It, Tom's very engaging. Um, you know, sometimes you can grab him on his way to a press conference or his way after it and maybe, you know, get him for a couple of minutes. But you know, he's uh, he's pretty even-tempered guy uh, with us, but we see his fire on the field. And, you know, when, when players talk about him, they talk about him as like a regular guy when they, they walk into the locker room for the first time, and he's like the first guy that walks up to them and says, hey, I'm Tom. You know, and and, and especially the rookies always, you know, kind of look up like, yeah, we know who you are. <laughs> um, so they, they're kind of taken back by that. But they also they talk about how – he's the hardest worker in that room, and he's the guy that's, that's always staying late. And they, they figure if the if the guy that's won six Super Bowls uh, and three MVPs is the hardest worker in the room, then I have no excuse, no excuse but to not follow that, that through. And it's kind of the same with Bill. Uh, the success he's had, um, you know, certainly mistakes have been made, but for the most part, he's always going to put them in a position to win so they know if they listen to him and follow the game plan, they're going to be in a position to win every week, and I think that's that's kind of the two most important things that 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 players, especially newcomers, uh, realize pretty pretty much right off the bat when they get to Foxborough.
4: This Sunday, a rematch of the Super Bowl that Tom Brady and the Patriots and Bill Belichick lost a couple of years ago, a chance for revenge. Jim McBride of the Boston Globe, thank you so much for joining us here in The Sporting Life.
5: Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app.
4: Last November, the town of Paradise in Northern California was devastated by a wildfire. The campfire, as it was called, would kill 85 people. Nearly 19,000 structures were destroyed. But as Tom Rinaldi reports in this E60 story, the community refused to give up. And amid the devastation... The high school football team became a focal point.
6: 170 miles north of San Francisco, alone atop a ridge in the Sierra Nevadas, Paradise, California. The town began as a miners' outpost and grew into a community of nearly 27,000. When Rick Prinz arrived here 30 years ago, he knew he'd found home. A hidden beautiful spot that people don't really know about.
2: You're in the mountains. It's cooler. It's a great
6: small-town feel. In 1999, Prince took over the football program at Paradise High, which hadn't won more than four games in a season in a decade. His mission was to change that. Our slogan is, we just hit people. When I'm changing the culture, that was it. Paradise
7: assistant coaches Andrew Hopper and Paul Orlando. There's something different about us. There's something odd about us. We don't fit in a lot of places. And that crazy mountain folk mentality that we have together.
8: Well, we used to have a term back in the day, CMF. You know, and we won't tell you what it means, but that's that's the term we used to have.
6: Crazy mountain folk. Cl- close enough for me. That's the G-rated version. Yeah, you're very G-rated. Under Prince, the Paradise Bobcats became one of the top teams in the region. With an uneven pitch and even worse lighting, their home field became the place that no team wanted to visit but where every boy in town, including Lucas Hartley and J.D. Webster, wanted to play. My first football game I went to was in third grade,
0: as I showed up and got some Skittles and a Gatorade from the snack bar and went and sat in the end zone.
8: And then you hear the band playing their music. We all love Friday nights, and that's really what I wanted to do when I got older.
2: Most people would say paradise is a football town. That's very pleasing to me because that's where I've poured my heart out for 30 years.
6: In that time, has won 166 games, 10 league titles, and six sectional championships. In 2018, Paradise went 8-2 and two in the regular season. It seemed the Bobcats might have a chance to add to their trophy case. We knew that we were going to be good,
0: 100%. And I think for sure, going into the playoffs, everyone was feeling the same way.
6: I don't think we could have been stopped. When you go to bed the night of November 7, what are you thinking about?
7: Football. I was watching film. Went to bed very late. Getting ready for the playoffs.
6: The next morning, November 8th, 2018,
7: a different season would begin. I woke up, I took my son to school, and I saw the smoke. Got home, I woke my wife up, made sure she knew, hey, uh, we might wanna start getting some stuff together just in case. And then the sky changed, and it's hard to describe the sun went out, and everything around us turned red.
3: Fire rescue. Hello, I'm calling about fire and smoke and orange glow in the sky. Uh,
2: my place is completely on fire. Totally okay. surrounded by flames.
3: The started the
6: fire in my yard. It's everywhere. It it's a major fire. At approximately 6.30 a.m., sparks from a utility line ignited dried brush in the valley nearby pushed up the ridge by winds exceeding 40 miles an hour the fire grew to an inferno first thought my first thought i said it get out get in the car and go just after 8 a.m in near pitch darkness the entire town of Paradise was ordered to evacuate.
1: We have fire everywhere, all over Paradise right now. The mandatory evacuations are in effect for all of Paradise.
8: Um, Heavenly Father, please help us. Please help us to be safe.
6: Thousands at the same time were now trying to escape down the hill from Paradise to nearby Chico, many by a single road coaches, and players among them. Panic. The whole town was in panic. That wind was going so hard, that fire was moving so fast, there was panic by everybody.
2: Two lanes going down, just stopped in traffic. Dark as midnight. It's 9.30 in the morning. You could hear the fire just bearing down.
7: The roads were so congested and stopped that people had to stop and actually run from their vehicles. County 13 is back.
3: Hey, guys! Walk towards the left. Are they
4: coming for us?
8: Come on. Watch
4: out! Watch out!
8: Yeah! It looks like hell. It's hot. Really hot. There was already smoke in the car. My whole family was like, we, we were just trapped. We couldn't get out. I thought I was going to die.
6: At what point did you feel like we're clear?
8: Um once we got past the the Paradise sign, which was already on fire, I could tell that we were out of Paradise and we were fine. But I knew we were leaving home forever at that moment. When I was leaving, I looked at my wife and said, "The house is gone." It it, it it was it was rough.
1: By
6: the time it began to slow that night, the campfire, as it would be called, would be the most destructive wildfire in California history. One hundred fifty-three thousand acres burned; eighteen thousand structures ruined. 86 lives lost the magnitude of it starts
2: to sink in everything burned
6: everything was gone how many players and coaches were impacted and touched by the fire
2: well all of them all but three players lost their homes and all but two coaches lost their homes. What added some stress though is I we had a game. We had a game. That night, playoff game.
6: What ultimately did you decide?
2: We decided to end the season.
8: I thought um that my football season was I mean my football. Life was over, honestly, because I wouldn't play anywhere else in Paradise. No way.
0: The one thing that I was afraid of in that moment was that I don't ever want to be not going to Paradise High School. And it was like, that's all I could think about was, things will never be the
6: same. Due to health and safety concerns, no one was allowed to return to Paradise. And for players like J.D. Webster, that meant not returning to Paradise High. Where are you going to school?
8: Here, in the warehouse next to the airport. It sounds crazy, like I'm talking crazy, but that's really where our school is though, And we're grateful for it.
6: In January, when school resumed, classes were held in Chico, 19 miles away. Enrollment, once nearly a 1,000 students, fell by nearly half. As assistant coach Andrew Hopper explains, some of the Paradise residents left for completely different areas.
7: They're spread out all over the place. We even have families going to Texas. We are displaced all over this nation right now.
6: Lucas Hartley began taking his classes online allowing him to work 40 hours a week at an auto salvage yard to help his family pay rent on an apartment. Four months ago, I was
0: just a high school kid. Went to school every single day. And now it's like I have to work a full-time job, take online classes and stuff, because things are just different now. I mean, a lot of what I do is just work, Like, just, you know... Whatever comes in that day. What keeps you going? Football. I guess. There's not too
6: much, you know. Yet for all that was lost on November 8th, 2018, one piece of paradise remained virtually untouched.
2: Here we are at our stadium... And it looks pretty normal. You can see some burning right over here up that hill. You can see where the fire went around over there by the burn on the trees.
6: Somehow, Paradise High and its home field were intact, and head coach Rick Prinz was determined to put his team back on that field. The prospects for a football season in 2019. How do you describe them? We're going to have one. Why? Why does it matter?
2: I want to make sure that the kids that come to our school have a football program that they can be proud of.
8: Most of us, we've decided that we're not moving. No, this is the last year. We're going to all stay together, and we're going to win a championship.
6: In late January, in Chico, Paradise gathered as a team for the first time since the week of the fire.
7: I just wanted to hug everybody. I wanted them to know that they weren't alone and I wanted to give them strength. You know, it's so hard to think about the future. I think of this last season, is it just me? It seems like it's eight years ago. It seems like it's been so long since we've seen each other. I don't even understand time right now. It makes no sense to me. To say that we've had to go through hurdles is a stupid understatement. And we talked about what it means to be paradise. We take pride that we don't fit in anywhere. You guys notice it. We're in everyone's community. What are they saying already? Get rid of these paradise boys. <laughs> right? Well, I feel it too, boys. You know why? Because my heart bleeds green and gold and I'm a paradise boy too. So hold your heads up high and know this. We may be outcast, but we're going to be strong as hell after all this is done. And we can accomplish anything we put our minds to, and I love you guys, all right? And so, the boys from Paradise
6: would begin their odyssey.
2: You have about 10 minutes of station.
6: Hoping to reach a new season. (laughs) Assistant coach Paul Orlando recalls some of the many challenges Paradise Football faced. What's the current state of your football facilities? Not very good. You know where we're practicing, out here in the the weeds. So that's the current state. Training outside the warehouse. They started with just 22 varsity players.
7: This journey that we're going to go on, we're not going out there for no participation awards. And I don't care who they schedule. We're going to roll through
5: every single one of them.
6: Their goal, to be able to play their opening game at home. In early August, the team, now 40 strong on varsity, was allowed to hold camp in paradise. Three weeks before opening night, coaches and players gathered as camp concluded.
2: There's been a lot of changes, a lot of things going on, but we're still going to put on our helmets. We're going to put on our shoulder pads. And we're going to rock people, right? That's our mentality right now. And if we're a little bit
0: angry about our situation, all the better.
6: Captain Lucas Hartley addressed the team.
0: I just want to say this game's been, like, super heartbreaking for me because last year I thought after the fire and everything that it was going to be the last season I played for Paradise High. And believe it or not, it made me so happy to know I had an opportunity to come out here and play with you guys. Every single one of these guys on this team, I have a memory with you and it means so much to me. I'm serious and it makes my, it breaks my heart so much knowing that this is my last year playing with you guys. I'm sorry. I love you guys.
6: Simple formation. You got the Z up at the top. You got the X down here. They're in an I.
1: We are the 2, ladder 3. We still can't hear you, we are number
2: one. Hey, let's go. It's getting close. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for allowing us to all come together and keep this tradition of Paradise Football alive. They thought you were down. They thought you were weak. They thought you couldn't fight back. You know what I got to say to that? Hell no! When you're going down the bleachers tonight, think about how hard you worked, the long road here, and then those that try to take it away from you. No mercy tonight. Don't come to the mountain on three. One, two, three. Don't come to the mountain! All
8: right, let's go.
6: Nine months, two weeks, and one day after their season was ended by the campfire, the boys from paradise returned to their field. To that patch of soil they call home.
0: People always say you don't miss something until it's gone, and then you miss it like hell. I love that community
6: with everything.
8: Hartley number 20.
6: They played for more than a win. They played for a chance to show the 5,000 in attendance what had risen from the ashes. When a town has gone through what this town has, why does a game still matter?
8: Because Paradise is a football town.
7: And here's what I pray for you tonight that you started a healing that's gonna continue through the rest of the season. Doggone it, you guys, you've been through so much. This feels great. GMA, 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 GMA,
4: GMA. The Paradise High School football team just completed a perfect regular season at 10-0 and and reached the California Division Three playoffs.
1: This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app.
4: Next week at the Yale Bowl, the renewal of one of the great rivalries in all of sports. It is the game, Harvard at Yale, a football rivalry that goes back much more than a century, to the very beginnings of college football. College football this year is celebrating its 150th, its sesquicentennial anniversary, and you could say for the first half of the history of college football, Ivy League football absolutely central to the game. That has not been the case in the last 65 years since the Ivy League made the decision to de-emphasize football, but even after that decision was made in 1968, on November 23rd, one of the greatest, one of the most epic, one of the most exciting football games ever was played at the Yale Bowl. It is known as the game among all of the games. And joining us now is the author, George Howe Colt, whose book The Game, Harvard Yale in America, nineteen sixty eight, was published last year to commemorate the fiftieth anniversary. George, um, for people who are unfamiliar with that remarkable game that ended in twenty nine 29 tie what makes it so significant even now
3: well the significance um is that as you mentioned it was it's one of the most thrilling college football games of all time Both Harvard and Yale came into the game undefeated for the first time since 1909. Yale was ranked 16th in the country going into the game, ahead of, and nobody who knows anything about college football today will believe this, they were ranked ahead of Alabama and Nebraska. (laughs) Um, And so uh, it was was actually a game that would affect the, you know, if Yale won the game handily, it was said that they would vault into the top 10 football rankings. And what made the game so... Uh, fascinating at the time was Yale raced out to a sixteen. They had a sixteen-point lead with three minutes to go. Harvard score. Harvard went down the field. They ended up scoring. 16 points in the final 42 seconds of the game, which is almost a mathematical impossibility, uh, and tied Yale 29-29, absolutely stunning Yale, which was heavily favored to win the game. Now, the reason people still remember this game is not only because it was a thrilling game, but... um, it because uh, because it was a tie in 1996, as you probably know, the NCAA uh, uh, voted to, to uh, allow overtime. So there's not going to be any more tie games in college football. And so um, that was one of the reasons the game is still remembered. But For me, what was interesting about the game was that that it was this seemingly miraculous truce kind of, uh, although Yale players didn't see it that way, set in the midst of an extremely polarizing year, 1968, when all sorts of things were happening in the country to, to divide our country.
4: There's a lot to be interested in in the game from 1968, 51 years ago, next week. How do you situate the story of the game and football, which which in many ways we think of as um, kind of a cornerstone of society when society was falling apart at the seams.
3: Well, that's so interesting. That's a good question because, you know, at the time in the Ivy League schools, particularly Yale and Harvard, um, and particularly at Harvard, football was seen as, you know, a very, very militaristic sort of uh, right-wing sport, I would even say that the Harvard students, you know, sort of scorned the football players in, in some ways, whereas at Yale, football still played a major part in, in campus life. But in 1968, when both of those teams were moving through their seasons uh, undefeated, um, even the Harvard students start, started to get interested in football and started to think this is kind of remarkable. And I think on both campuses, football provided something of a relief from all of the stresses that were going on in the world at the time. I mean, most of the students at Harvard and Yale in those days, as soon as they graduated from college, they were going to be facing the draft. And so um, they were thinking, my God, what am I going to do? Am I going to go to Vietnam? Am I going to go to Canada? Uh, And football, I think, in that miraculous you know, season for Harvard and for Yale provided them with a diversion an outlet. Oh, let's go to the Yale Bowl. Let's go to Harvard Stadium and forget about the war for two or three hours and just watch these two, you know, amazing teams uh, do what they do best.
4: Again, we're speaking with George Howe Colt about his book published last year, The Game, Harvard, Yale, and America in 1968. You're a Harvard man yourself. Describe to... uh our listeners who don't really understand what it's all about, the Harvard-Yale rivalry, if, if we can do so in, uh, you know, in fewer than a, a few hours?
3: <laughs> well, as you alluded to, you know, Harvard and Yale, Yale primarily practically invented the game. Not quite. They, it's to Harvard and Yale's endless chagrin that theirs was not the first football game played in this country. Uh, <laughs> Um, they were beaten by about five years by Princeton and Rutgers. Um, but, but once Harvard and Yale began to play, uh, they pretty much made all the rules for the sport through the end of the, 20, the 19th century and the early 20th century. Walter Camp at Yale pretty much devise the modern game and um well as, you know, a, as a cornell
4: is, man i do have to give pop warner a little credit i mean it's it, you're right yes, it's all yes. walter camp but we do have you know i feel obligated uh you know pop
3: warner did make make some important Thank contributions you. Thank you uh um and on the field yale and harvard pretty much dominated uh perhaps cornell did too but i think yale and harvard <laughs> with the with the you know they won. you're right a lot of national championships up until about 1925, and then uh, and then those you know the Ivy League began to fade. But what made the '68 game remarkable is that you know it was one of those years that the Ivy League was in resurgence. Um, you know, also Princeton in the 1950s with Dick Casimir who would win the Heisman Trophy. There were there were little waves of excellence for for Ivy League football, and '68 was one of those waves, but. You know, um, Harvard and Yale pretty much defined the sport, uh, as, as you mentioned, really for the first 50 years, 50 years of the sport.
4: You know, of course, we're talking about 1968, the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy have taken place a few months earlier, uh, race riots in many American cities. How was Harvard and how was Yale reacting to the larger societal forces at this time?
3: Well, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I had a real desire to know what the players on that field... I was 14 when I was at the game and I saw these players and they were like Greek gods to me. But I wanted to find out who they were in 1968 when I wrote this book. How did they react to things like the draft? How did they react to the war? How did they react to the the assassinations? and, And all of the really horrible things that went on that year. And indeed, you know, Many of the players, well, all of the players, were affected in some way. But for instance, Harvard's top player, John Tyson, who was a, uh, who was, um, would uh, had had an NFL career in mind, and certainly would have, probably would have gone on to play in the NFL. After Martin Luther King's assassination, um, he actually quit the team to devote his life to uh, to uh, furthering. The um, cause of African Americans on uh, on the Harvard campus, and uh, he helped uh, set up the the um, uh, you know, uh, um, the, the, the African American Studies major at Harvard. So he quit the team. He didn't actually play in the 1968 game. Um, Harvard also had uh, two members of Students for Democratic Society. Listeners may not remember this, but Students for SDS was the radical anti-war organization and uh, Harvard, two of Harvard players were members. In fact, five months after the game, they would be part of the group that uh, took over University Hall, Harvard's main administration building, for for a night before they were uh, dragged out by the Cambridge uh, police. Uh, and uh, Harvard had a Vietnam veteran on its roster. He was an all-Ivy safety. He hadn't touched a football in three years before he came back from Vietnam in 1968 and rejoined the Harvard team, and he would play a big role in that Yale game. Um, four of the players on the field that day would go on to to, to serve in Vietnam, uh, and all of the players would be in some way affected you know, by that year, by that era, you know, as all of us who lived through that era.
4: George Howe Colt's book is The Game, Harvard-Yale in American 1968, the Harvard-Yale game taking place again at the Yale Bowl as it did in 1968 next weekend in New Haven. George, thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you so much, Jeremy. I appreciate it. Thanks for having joined us.
4: I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern time.